Why don't we start with you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and basically how you got here? Okay, well, I spent my whole career um, up until 2017 as in academia as a university faculty member. Mm. Um, most recently, um, I was at Georgia Tech where I served as chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences for 13 years. Mm. Okay, and I resigned my tenured position in 2017 partly over <laughs> you know the too much cancel culture um too much intolerance i had no idea what to tell the students <laughs> you know it was mm-hmm. you know if i said okay i just need to go and, and the, the university administrators wanted me gone um why did they yeah, want me gone there there are certain industries where cancel culture hits pretty hard and and i feel like environmental studies is one of those well, I th- I think the climate people invented cancel culture, you know, 20 years ago. I think they were the original people, you know, with the hockey stick and all that kind of stuff. Anybody who disagreed, you know, you just get canceled. You get called a denier. You get completely marginalized. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the administrators at Georgia Tech wanted me gone. I said, okay. Well, I can stick around and suck up my big university salary, or I can just leave and get on with my life. And so I left, and I have a company, Climate Forecast Applications Network, of which mm. I'm president, mm. and that takes up a lot of my time. Mm. But I also communicate with the public, and I recently published a new book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk. Mm. Tell us about the book. Tell us about the impetus for writing it and what kind of great information is in there. Well, in in 2010, and this was following Climate Gate, you know, the whole issue with the unauthorized release of the uh, emails from the University of East Anglia, which showed climate scientists behaving badly. I mean, this made me question a lot of what was going on. And I spoke out publicly, you know, trying to you know, make a plea for greater transparency, make your data publicly available, be more honest about uncertainties, and, you know, don't be overly confident in your findings, and be respectful of people you disagree with. And, you know, I thought that was motherhood and apple pie kind of stuff, but it really angered me people in the climate establishment. And, you know, I became an outcast, and people started calling me, you know, a denier and, you know, all sorts of things. So, you know, you know, it was a a pretty strange situation. Hmm. Okay. So. Oh, oh, so the book, (laughs) I got lost lost in my story. So I started this journey in 2010 to understand how did we get here you know, where you can't even say sensible things and you get ostracized and essentially booted out of academia. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we've got people are, the alarm is being sounded. Um, the solutions that are being put forward make no sense. Um, it's insanely partisan. We're destroying our energy infrastructure and even even our food systems, you know, in an attempt to control the climate, which is totally futile. I thought, how did we get here? And 
how, you know, what is there, are there better ways to really think about this problem? So I started this journey in 2010 on my blog, Climate Etc., judithcurry.com. And when COVID struck and I said, okay, oh, I was contacted by Anthem Press, which is an academic publisher, and said, we have a new sustainability series. Would you consider writing a book? And I said, perfect. You know, it was COVID. I knew I wasn't going to be traveling for a while. It was a perfect time to hunker down and write a book. Right. So I pulled all my thoughts together that had been ruminating, you know, for the past decade or so and organized it into this book. And the subtitle is, you know, Rethinking Our Response. It's really a rethink of the whole thing, how, how we should think about the problem, how we should think about the risks, how we should think about managing the risk, given the deep uncertainties involved. And, you know, and, and it really helps us clarify thinking about what's science, what we don't know, what yeah. we can't know, <laughs> right. Uh, right. And, and our values. I mean, what do we really want in the short term and the long term and recognizes that different people have different values. So how should we factor that into our decision making? But most importantly, we need to get disabuse ourselves of the idea that we can control the climate. I mean, how did we come to think that bad weather is caused by burning of fossil fuels? I mean, that's completely crazy. So, um, you know, I'm trying to make sense out of the whole thing, and I'm pretty happy with the way the book turned out. Well, so I'm glad you mentioned fossil fuels because that's one of my questions here. So I mentioned to you before we hit the record button here that the best episodes that I that I run are the episodes where I can kind of sit back and be an audience member and learn a thing or two. So I'm going to throw some some of these basic canards or tenets out there about the climate change um, agenda. And I want you to tell us what we should know about it. This this first one, let's start at the very, very basic step here. We hear all the time that there is a consensus, 99.9999% to the nth degree of scientists agree that the planet is warming and it's due to human activity. First and foremost, is there a consensus? Is that true? Okay. Um, it, it's a politically manufactured consensus that there's very little that all climate scientists agree on. Yes, the climate has been warming. Yes, humans are emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And yes, more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has a warming effect. However, there's no agreement at all on the most consequential issues, whether human-caused warming is dominating over natural climate variability, mm. how the climate of the 21st century will play out, and whether warming is dangerous. So, so yeah, there's a consensus, there's agreement on the basics, but not on the most consequential issues. So that's interesting. That last one is very interesting. Whether or not warming is dangerous, because that's all we hear, is that the Earth's temperature is rising, and this leads to, what do they tell us? This leads to more extreme weather events. They are more frequent and more severe. Is that true? Even the UN Climate Assessment Report says that there's no evidence of an increase in extreme weather events other than for heat waves. The UN okay. says this. The UN assessment reports say this, and but they forget to mention that deaths 
from heat events, heat waves, are an order of magnitude less than deaths from cold events. Mm -hmm. So if you're reducing the number of cold events overall, I mean, this results in a decline in overall mortality from heat and cold extremes. So, I mean, (laughs) you know, that's the only thing that the IPCC really has. I mean, there's hurricanes aren't getting worse. Tornadoes have actually declined. Um, Floods increase in some regions and decrease in other regions. Um, Sea level rise is slowly creeping upwards, you Mm. know, at a rate of, you know, seven or eight inches a century. Um, You know, exactly where is the danger? And, And they've really hyped, you know, like I said earlier, how did we ever come to think that burning fossil fuels cause bad weather? You know, here in the U.S., the weather, the extreme weather events were far worse in the um, 1930s. The worst heat waves, the worst droughts, worst forest fires, and even the worst U.S. landfalling hurricanes. And this was in the 1930s when the temperatures were, you know, two degrees Fahrenheit cooler than they are now. Almost so a that, century ago. Yeah. So so that there's just, you know, no, it's not extreme events. Um, the slow creep of sea level rise, yes, that is related to warming. Um, the, the slow melting of glaciers, that is related to um, warming. But natural climate variability really has a dominant impact even on sea level rise and glacier melting. So, you know, I just don't get it. I mean, to me, the the dangerous part is the weakest part of the whole argument. That is so interesting. So polar ice caps and glaciers, are they actually melting? Is that being exaggerated or is that happening? Okay, well, okay, the Antarctic ice sheet is actually gaining mass. There's a part of the Antarctic ice sheet, the West Antarctic ice sheet, which is fairly unstable. Why don't we ever hear about that? been losing some mass. Um, Greenland has been losing a little bit of mass, but that seems to be cyclical. Um, it varies with the Atlantic multidecadal oscillation, which is an ocean circulation pattern. Once the, you know, we've been in the warm phase of the Atlantic multidecadal oscillation since 1995, which is when we've seen melting from Greenland. But once that shifts to the cold phase, that's certainly going to slow down. Um, The Arctic sea ice showed a big decline um, in the early part of the 21st century, say from about 2000 to 2007. But -hmm. since 2007, it's been fairly flat. I mean, we haven't really seen any decline since then. Mm. Um, you know, so, so there's really not a lot there. I mean, all of this is overhyped and data is cherry-picked. And, you know, every heat wave, you know, and every, you know, is blasted through the media. And mm. then people talk about cold, and then they even start blaming that on CO2 warming, which is a joke because you can't blame it on CO2 warming. Um, you know, it just makes no sense. And, you know, and 
you know, activist climate scientists are so, they have this worldview that humans are bad and that we, you know, need to reduce population and stop using fossil fuels and no more fertilizer and stop eating meat. And, you know, that just happens to be their worldview, which isn't the worldview of most of the inhabitants of this planet. And they're using, you know, their authority you know, as climate scientists to push all this and they're claiming the moral high ground. Well, you know, how is it moral to starve people of energy and food? And I I, I think, I think that's exactly right. And so, okay, let me forgive me for this rather silly question. Tree planting. I mean, I'm sure that helps, right? Does it not? Um, At the margins. Yeah, I mean, trees, I mean, that's good for the environment to have more, you know, have have the natural vegetation and trees do take up carbon dioxide. Mm. But unless you really take care of the forests, you know, they can, you know, just burn down and you send all that carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere. So you have to manage forests carefully. And tree planting is a good thing in regions that have been deforested for agriculture or whatever purposes. Good point. So I so to your earlier point, it seems like they're always trying to get us to restrict something and they're never trying to get us to be positive about something. Right. So we hear lately that if we, if we keep eating cheeseburgers, the world is going to end or something like that. But So why don't they ever put their time and their energy and their resources in getting us to be proactive about something like tree planting or if there's something more effective then do that. It's it's always a control mechanism that they're trying to introduce. Exactly. It, it's about power. <laughs> okay. It's it's about power and about influence, and um, it's it's really an anti-human agenda, in my opinion. Um, it's just a, a a very anti-human worldview that is consistent with sort of the UN globalist agenda, um, but it's certainly not what most people in the United States want or in the rest of the world for that matter. Is it, it true? It's, the problem is, is it, it's, an, it's a problem of elites, people who have too much money. I mean, the biggest, you know, John Kerry, Leonardo DiCaprio, all these people with their private jets and their gazillion foot yachts and all those kind of thing. Oh, come on, you know, and, and you're proselytizing about, um, fossil fuels and you're telling Africa they can't have grid electricity. I mean, you know, it's just massive hypocrisy, massive hypocrisy. No, it's, it's really to the point where it's, um, where it's absurd now. Is it, is it true that this is the hottest the, the earth service has ever been? It's a, it's the, probably the warmest, in the last century where we have good enough observations, but then they say it's the warmest in the last 125,000 years. Give me a break. Okay. People are talking about the record temperature in 2023, and they've just got all the global analyses of surface temperatures out and they differ by two tenths of a degree. Mm. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, we're, we're only talking about you know, warming of not that much and to a difference of two tenths of a degree in one year. And this is with all the mod- modern observing systems, satellites and ocean buoys and on and on it goes. And, and we're supposed to believe that, you know, we have temperatures 
more accurate than that back 125,000 years ago. It's ludicrous, <laughs> absolutely ludicrous. So what, what is normal for climate change? Is there a normal? No. Well, the, the climate is a dynamic, complex dynamic system. It's never in equilibrium. It's always out of balance. Again, the oceans and the ice sheets are flywheels on the climate system. They have very long time scales. Mm. So the Earth's climate is in never in equilibrium. And even without external forcing changes, these internal dynamics of the oceans and the ice sheets cause natural variability on time scales from years to millennia. Mm. Um, the El Nino La Nina events are one manifestation of that. We have decadal oscillations. We have the multi-decadal oscillations, which I mentioned before in the Atlantic and also in the Pacific. And then there's longer time. These are internal, you know, circulations associated with the coupling of a chaotic atmosphere to a chaotic ocean. Mm. And, you know, this is where the complexity in our climate system comes from. And it's these circulation patterns that drive extreme weather events Okay, not the slow creep of of CO two driven warming. Mm. Is there a point where where life on the planet becomes unsustainable population wise? We're at eight billion now. If we got up to fifteen, twenty, twenty five, would that would that be a problem? Uh, probably not. Um, human ingenuity is is considerable, and you, you know, uh, population growth is slowing down like crazy. Mm. Um, you know, in you know, South Asia has slowed down quite a bit. Only Pakistan is, still has a pretty fast population doubling time. Mm. But in 1970, when Bangladesh was first formed, they had you know a population doubling time. You know, less than two decades, they were just growing like crazy. And now with economic development and education of women, Bangladesh is in a pretty good place. Mm. Uh, you know, they're a middle-income country. Their life expectancy is approaching that of the U.S. And their population is just a little above replacement. Mm. Okay, so it's a, you know, so, so wealth, human development and education of women. I mean, that's what keeps population under and cold. Europe is, you know, is losing people if it wasn't for immigration. Uh, Japan, South Korea, I mean, their population, and China, their populations are declining quite a bit. Um, So I don't see population growth as a big problem. Okay, right now we're producing enough food for 10 billion people. That doesn't mean it always gets distributed correctly. You know, yes. there are still famines, and that arises from bad governance, you know, dictators and whatever. Um, but, you know, and, and the the yield has of our agri- global agriculture has increased so much where we produce a lot more food with only an incremental increase in agricultural land. And particularly in, in Europe, a lot of agricultural land is now being reforested. They just don't need that much agricultural land. Uh, the Netherlands is insanely efficient in its agriculture. In fact, this tiny little country feeds most of Europe in terms of fruits and vegetables. Um, you know, just remarkably efficient. Wow. Mm. So I'm not too worried about people starving. Uh, human ingenuity is, you know, we, we just need to unleash that. And, 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 and the worst thing is if we starve everybody of energy, you know, we're not going to be able to, 
to to really <laughs> solve these problems. And this is the biggest concern, you know. Um, artificial intelligence and big data and blockchain and quantum this and all this kind of stuff that can robotic this, that, and the other requires a huge amount of electricity, things that could, you know, advance us, keep us safer, make us more prosperous, give us more leisure time. All of that requires electricity. And, and now they're putting a tourniquet around our electricity supply. And, and, and the worst thing is, is it makes us more vulnerable to extreme weather events if we don't have enough electricity and enough wealth. This is what keeps us safe, you know, from extreme weather events. It's, it's our fundamental infrastructure. And we're jeopardizing that with all this nonsense. It's it's always you know there the the policies that they push. When you peel back the onion, they always seem to have the opposite effect of what they're telling us they're going to have, and and not just slightly different, but the exact opposite. It's really kind of remarkable and not in a good way. It's it's the the, the whole policy situation is insane. They thought this was a simple problem. It most certainly is not. You cannot control the climate. Okay, and you cannot change the global energy infrastructure on the time scale of a decade or two. I mean, we we're going to need much more electricity in the future. Let's figure out how we can get it and keep our and to make the transition. You know, by twenty one hundred, we're probably not going to be burning fossil fuels anymore. We should have better sources of energy, and fossil fuels would be too valuable for various products and whatever. So, I mean, in 2100, we will not be burning fossil fuels, at least very much. But how we get from here to there, you know, we can, you know, send us back to the, you know, 19th century, (laughs) or we can really move ahead into the 21st century and thrive, which advanced energy systems um, nuclear is the obvious choice. Advanced geothermal looks good. Fusion is a pro- you know a promise, but who knows when and if that'll be realized? And who knows what new technologies might be out there? Okay, let's un- unleash all this creativity, ingenuity, entrepreneurship, and let's get on with it. But we can't do that. The transition is going to require a lot of fossil fuels in the near term. So let's just mm. accept that and stop trying to kneecap the fossil fuel companies. Okay, we're not going to diminish demand for energy by reducing the supply of fossil fuels. It's just not going to work <laughs> that way. So, so, fo- so the extraction of fossil fuels from the earth, that is not an inherently dangerous exercise. Uh, not particular, not particularly. Um, coal... Again, there's fly ash and, you know, it's polluting. The extraction of coal is more polluting. Um, extraction of um, oil and gas, there's methane leakages, which is also oil and gas. And there are some impacts on the environment. But, you know, but they still use a rel- they have a relatively small land use imprint. We're talking about wind farms and solar farms and massive transition lines. I mean, they're going to cover a huge amount of land. Right. And in the U.S., 
you know, there's this huge, you know, not in my backyard. And even the environmentalists, you know, are knocking these back, you know, because of habitat problems. <laughs> you know, so so the environment the environmentalists want it both ways. Yeah. No fossil fuels and they don't like wind and solar. And nuclear is of course worse than anything. <laughs> and if we were all to go back to living in caves and burning firewood, eight billion people, that would be a big environmental problem. So it, it's just, it, all this just doesn't make sense. Where do you stand on, on green energy, on wind and solar? What do we need to know about those things? Um, I think there is a future for rooftop solar, and I think solar technologies have some room to advance. So I think there is a role for rooftop solar. Um, wind, I just don't get I. I understand that there are some regions where there's just nothing else going on. And North Texas seems to like us wind turbines and it seems to work for them. Um, but in most parts of the world, they don't have the land footprint and these wind turbines, you know, they're only good for 10 to 15 years before they need to be replaced. Mm. It's a huge amount of waste. It's a huge amount of expenditure. And they say, well, wind is free. Yeah, but the infrastructure to produce wind energy most certainly is not. Yes. These massive amounts of transmission lines with expensive additions, you know, inverters and synchronous condensers and on and on it goes that make battery storage. You need all this stuff to make um, wind work. And it makes, you know, the, the grid unstable. Um yeah, penetration is more than 20 to 30% of wind and solar, it becomes a very big challenge to manage your electric grid. So, so yeah. No, I was just going to ask, tell us about this, to that end, tell us about this intersection between climate science and political science. I feel like this is um, this is quite dangerous for all of us because, you know, we're all living on this planet. And and like you've been alluding to over the course of this conversation, these decisions affect us all. It's not like you can, you know, compartmentalize them to I mean, if they want to do away with cars or cows or whatever, that's something that affects everyone. Um, um, and it feels like it's been hijacked. The science has been hijacked. Oh, from the very beginning. I, I go through all this in chapter four of my book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk. Um, the, the policy cart has been out in front of the scientific horse from the very beginning. You yeah. go back to the 1980s. I mean, the agenda from the UN Environmental Program was anti-fossil fuels, anti-capitalism. They seized on the climate change issue, you know, as the vehicle, you know, to get us where they want to go, which is um, non-governmental world controlled by the UN. Yes. <laughs> Basically, right, right. Uh, and in 1992, the UN Framework Convention Climate Change Treaty to Prevent Dangerous Anthropogenic Climate Change was signed by 196 countries, including the United States. It was in 1992 before we had any idea, before there was any evidence at all of human-caused global warming. So, from the very beginning of this, the policy card has been way out in front of the scientific horse. So, um, you know, it's just been politics all the way around, and the scientists have become, you know, complicit in this. 
Um, I detail a lot of the history, you know, in my book of how we came to this place. And and now scientists are rewarded for going along with this, hewing the party line, you know, sounding the alarm. People, scientists who are activists and vocal um, get recognition, get hired to be to direct all these institutes. They get recognition yeah. from professional societies. They get um, seats at important tables, direct access to policymakers, and it's heady stuff. And in the midst of all this, I mean, they're no longer doing objective science. Is there a group of scientists out there that we should be, you know, there's a, there's an expression when it comes to intelligence, people who know aren't talking and the people who are talking don't know. Is there a similar kind of phenomenon or dynamic in the, in the climate um, science realm? Are there specific scientists that we should be paying attention to and specific scientists that we should probably not pay a whole lot of attention to? Well, there's a huge group of both of those types. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a huge group of both of those types. Um, I I wouldn't even know how to start with naming names. If, if you want a list of books by people who I think are worth reading, mm-hmm. you, know, you can do that. I'll list um, Steve Coonan, Bjorn Lomberg, Michael Schellenberger, Vaclav Smil. Um, those are a few that come off the top of my head in terms of books to read that I regard as sensible in the climate space. Uh, There's a lot of dangerous activists out there who are just doing enormous harm, both to the science and to the policy process, you know, and they're writing, you know, best-selling books and they have publicity agents and speaker agents, you know, these are university professors. Come on. Uh, You know, playing this publicity game and they hang out with Leonardo DiCaprio and on and on it goes, you know, it's just, come on, right. come on folks. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, so there's a lot of They're celebrities, they're celebrities now they think. Exactly. It's careerism, celebrity, power politics, the whole works. Um, yes, there are honest scientists out there. Many of them just keep their head down and do their work and publish their papers. Um, others are more vocal, um, writing books and so forth and so on. But, you know, it's very hard to sort out all this. And very hard. At the end of the day, in my book, you know, I acknowledge this disagreement. There's a bunch of different perspectives. So now what do we do? <laughs> well, we use decision making frameworks that acknowledge uncertainty, that acknowledge disagreement. I mean, that's part of the inputs here. Okay, now what do we do? Do we do nothing? Well, that's an option. Another option is to find the low-hanging fruit where everybody can agree on. And this tends to be the smaller, more regional type, you know, policies and initiatives that, you know, local communities can agree on to, you know, to secure their common interests. So so trying to break this down into some bite-sized problems and you can get people to agree on and you can build from there. And if, if we want to evolve into a better 21st century energy infrastructure, which we should, you know, let's get on with the research and development and recognize in the near term, we're going to need a lot more fossil fuels. 
Well, this so this is part of the reason that I was really looking forward to having you on because I people might be surprised to hear me say this at the end of this episode, but I consider myself an environmentalist, right? I mean, I actually rinse out, I separate my recyclables and I actually rinse them out. My family looks at me like I'm <laughs> like I'm some kind of a Boy Scout, even though we know that many recycle, you know, the vast majority of things that are labeled recyclables don't actually get recycled. But I'm that guy that when we go on a picnic or when we go to the beach or when we go on a hike, I make sure to leave the place in better condition, at very least the same, but in most cases, if I can, in better condition than, than when we found it. So I care about the environment, but I, I also have this sneaking suspicion, which you've now confirmed, that we're being misled. Where do I go? Is there a political home for me on this issue? <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, I'm an old-fashioned environmentalist also. You know, I care about the environment, clean air, clean water, you know, habitats and this, yeah. that, that. Right. Um, yeah, so I care about that stuff. And all that has gotten lost in this climate change thing. You know, in the 1970s, you know, Greenpeace got its start with Save the Whales. Right. And now Greenpeace is fine with whales being killed, you know, off the Atlantic coast by, you know, the wind turbine construction, you know. Um, okay, what is this? So, you know, we've got stuff that doesn't make sense. Um, you know, I don't know. Um the it's this issue has been so partisan yeah. and i've worked for the last more than a decade 15 years trying to bring through my congressional testimonies trying to bring the republican party to a saner position on all this mm. i think they are in a saner place um than they were you know 10 15 years ago um so in the, the, the issue is that this whole thing has been scientized where yeah. science drives policy. It doesn't. Very uncertain science. It, it, it should inform the policymakers, and then the policymakers have to sort out all the different values, the politics, the economics, and everything, and figure out what they're going to do about it. But the scientists in the U.S., particularly the U.N., has pushed the single solution, all these drastic targets that are pretty meaningless in right. terms of, you know, getting rid of fossil fuels. So so it's just a very stupid situation. And people are starting to realize, governments are starting to is that we can't do this. Um, do we need to do this? We need to slow this down. You know, people, you know, reality is starting to bite <laughs> these people who are trying right. to move ahead quickly. So hopefully sanity will prevail. So I've tried to to define with my book, you know, a sensible middle ground that, you know, maybe both sides can buy into. We'll see how all that goes. But, um, you know, I'm slowly um, getting the word out there and, you know, doing a lot of podcasts and things like that, trying to broaden the dialogue on this issue. It, I mean, you're trying to be a voice of reason. That's what we need. We don't need any more. Extre I mean, speaking of extremism, we don't need any more extremism. And unfortunately, that's what's filling the public square, especially on this issue. You mentioned this at the top of the show. Mention, talk a little bit more about the Climate Forecast Applications Network. Okay, this is my company. I started in 2006, um, basically, and it was launched under the Georgia Tech sort of company incubator. And what we're looking to do is apply cutting-edge weather and climate research to 
making better forecast and decision support products to help our clients make better decisions. Um, our clients are a lot of them in the private sector. Um, some of them are government clients. Some of them are international clients. Um, in the private sector, include electric utilities companies, um, more broadly in the energy sector, and a number of clients in the insurance sector also. So um, we have a new grant from NOAA, Small Business Innovation Research um, Program, to apply artificial intelligence to making better weather forecasts of extreme weather events. So mm -hmm. we do a lot of research and development, but we do also a lot of service and engagement with our clients. So, you know, it, it's a small but well-established company that the work is very rewarding. And, it, you know, once you get in the private sector, you have skin in the game. You know, yeah. all these scientists spouting off with all of this stuff that makes no sense and turns out to be false. I can't do that or I lose clients. Right. Okay have to talk about uncertainty. We have to warn them of bad things that could happen, but put it in the appropriate context, you know, and always in context of uncertainty. So that, that's how I've able, been able to get and keep my clients. A very different mindset from um, the climate scientists who are endlessly spouting alarm. Gosh, it's so ref refreshing to hear some sanity on this issue. Um, I want to thank you for coming by, Judith, and making us a little bit smarter on this issue. Before we let you go, please tell the folks where they can find your book. Okay, my book is Climate Uncertainty and Risk. You can get it from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble and other online sellers. My blog is Climate Etc., JudithCurry.com. And if you're on Twitter, you can find me at CurryJA. Thanks for coming by, Judith. Come back real soon. Thank you. I enjoyed it.